1: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. I'm here today with Sean Metzger to talk about his new book, The Chinese Atlantic. Sean Metzger is a scholar who works at the intersection of several fields, visual culture, including art, fashion, film, and theater, as well as Asian American Caribbean Chinese film, performance, and sexuality studies. He has written two books. The first, Chinese Looks, Fashion, Performance, Race, was published through Indiana University Press in 2014, It demonstrates how aesthetics, gender, politics, economics, and race are interwoven through particular forms of dress in what Metzger calls the Sino-American interface from the late 19th through early 21st centuries. The Chinese Atlantic, seascapes, and the theatricality of globalization, in turn, complicates discourses of globalization through an examination of aesthetic objects and practices situated in cities from Shanghai to Cape Town. The book won the 2022 Association for Asian American Studies Book Award for Humanities and Cultural Studies in the Interdisciplinary Media Studies category, as well as the 2021 John W. Frick Award from from the American Theater and Drama Society for Best Book on Theater and Performance of and in the Americas. But as I finish reading this description, I'm sure some of our listeners are wondering is this really a new book in Chinese studies? Well, my first question to Sean will then be, what is the relationship between Asian American studies and Asian studies? And how can it productively help uh, our field to put those two disciplines together? I turn now to Sean.
0: Sure, thank you for inviting me, first of all, and thanks for the question. I've been interested in the intersections of Asian and Asian American studies for most of my career starting when I was a graduate student. And I work with Karen Shimakawa, and uh, who was doing a edited collection with Candace Cha called Orientations, that looked at Asian American and Asian studies and their intersections in the 90s, I think it was, when they started that project. And subsequently, I've been taken by other efforts in both fields to create bridges across those two disciplinary divides. For example, The Verge project that's produced its own journal now on Global Asia's, the intra Asian studies cultural um, intra intra Asia intra Asia cultural studies journal. There we go, Uh, and other kinds of diasporic moves. So I think Viet Le has a book that recently came out called Return Engagements about Vietnam, where he talks about diaspora, but for diaspora in his book, the destination is not the US necessarily, or it's not the endpoint of migration. So all of these moves, I think my work is in conversation with. For me in the Chinese Atlantic, I wanted to think specifically about a different kind of diffusion of Chineseness that was not necessarily Sinophone in the sense of using synthetic languages but was more attuned to other kinds of visual forms and when shishume wrote her book that kind of introduced the sinophone she was also interested in visuality so i kind of picked up the visuality from her and extended it in a different context because i wanted to focus on globalization and chineseness i wanted to de-center the u.s so I think a lot of globalization conversations are we talking about the U.S. as the the node or the pivot point? And I wondered what would happen if I moved the U.S. not out of the frame but to the background. So that was one of the moves I wanted to make. I think in doing that, it made some kinds of some of the claims I wanted to make sort of complicated because I was trying to think of what well, what kind of information do you need to think about and the Atlantic as a unit when Chineseness enters into that space? And how do we talk about that? So I ended up focusing mostly on the Caribbean, given the number of languages that there are, and I had roots there, both familial and scholarly. So that became the sort of nexus point for my analysis, and then it expanded as time went on. So I added England and South Africa as sites in addition. And so that work, I think, like Chinese South African studies, Chinese English studies, or Chinese UK studies, Chinese Caribbean studies, they sometimes fall into into rubrics like Chinese studies and sometimes fall outside of them. So it became a question for me, how do you create a rubric that will contain all of this material? And my effort was then the Chinese Atlantic to to sort of make that possible. Whether or not I'm successful, I guess time will tell. But that was the kind of the impetus for the project.
1: Uh, Well, I think quite successful, uh, but... The Chinese Atlantic, then the title of your book, um, China's oceanic visions have been more commonly, more geographically proximate, right, to the Pacific. But in interrogating the logics of globalization and colonialism that you've just sketched out for us briefly, you turn your attention to this other region. Can you tell us more about what is this Chinese Atlantic and how does that term expand upon and complicate other Atlantics? Um, Most notably, uh, you write about, of course, Paul Gilroy's critical schema of the Black Atlantic.
0: Yeah, thanks for that. That's an astute question. I think for me, Chinese Atlantic is primarily a speculative term, a sort of marking of a horizon of possibility, I would say. The idea was to interrupt some of the logics of the Black Atlantic, not to replace them with something else, but to supplement them and turn attention both to Chinese presence in the Atlantic world, now and historically, but also to deconstruct or destabilize the epistemologies that center what is clearly visible, if that makes sense. So I think part of my response to this has to do with how the book first emerged. So I was hired in the first Asian Americanist line ever produced at Duke University. So I got that job, but I was the only one, except for people who were hired in adjacent fields like Asian studies, but also did diaspora. So they were also doing Asian American studies. So it put me in conversation with Asianists right away. This goes back to your first question, how did this actually come about through networks? And most of the conversations at Duke at the time were about Black Atlantic studies, but they had previously had a project there called Oceans Connect. And so Oceans Connect became sort of something in the background I had been thinking about, like, of in terms of how do I enter the conversations that were happening at Duke specifically. So that led me to think about, well, who else is in the Atlantic? And what do, what do I do in my own fields that has, that has some connection to the Atlantic? And since I've been interested in Chineseness specifically for a long time, that became the sort of entry point for me. So the Chinese Atlantic then became a kind of methodology and a frame to think about globalization specifically in terms of Chinese fiscal, human, and cultural flows throughout the world, or at least throughout the Atlantic world. I define Chinese Atlantic then in different ways throughout the book, but in the introduction, for example, I offer it as as what I call a Fata Morgana. So Fata Morgana is the name for an optical phenomenon produced by light refracting due to air temperature variations particularly produced near the ocean surface so it's a it's a kind of phenomenon phenomenological encounter in which humans perceive an empirical phenomenon on the horizon partially produced by the sea so I was, i'm interested in that so that there's some sort of empirical thing that's happening for example chinese migration like literally the migration of people as well as the flows of chinese uh, fiscal uh, or Chinese loans, for example, to various Caribbean islands and things, as well as products. And then there's kind of the fantasies that are raised through that, or what we think we are experiencing when we encounter these these objects and other people. So I was interested in, in again, creating these metaphors that would help us think through how do, how do we describe and analyze different kinds of Chinese flows through different regions, again, specifically in the Caribbean, and then we moved on to South Africa and to the UK.
1: Great, so my next question really emerges out of what you've been saying. Of course, The Black Atlantic is a book from the mid-90s, but um, there's an oceanic turn that I think inflects a little bit differently, right? The study of seascapes that has been happening in both cultural and media studies. can you tell us how you understand your work vis-a-vis this emerging field, the the ocean as medium or the seascape? Um, who are your interlocutors there? and what theoretical terms are you elaborating? So some of the terms obviously occur in your title, but there are other words that that pop up uh, recurrently through your book in different contexts to sort of help us see how things emerge and how we might understand the phenomena you you, you talk about um, differently.
0: Yeah, thank you for that question. I think I was, I started being interested in coolies because it was the easiest thing to identify as a Chinese flow in the new world. So I had started by looking at the Cuba Commission Report, which is a 19th century document that indexed the various abuses that coolies uh, experienced during their work on plantations, specifically sugar plantations and also guano plantations. And that document is just a horrific account of how people die. I mean, it's like one chapter after another just relates all of these deaths. And that that was interesting to me because I think at the time, a lot of people had not read it or thought about it. And eventually, although I eventually took Cuba out of the, of the book itself, at least as a primary analytic for various reasons uh, of specialization really, but that has stuck with me in terms of how does a Cooley figure in, in something like the Black Atlantic, how might it help us rethink it? And it turns out that one of the images that's often used to describe or to illustrate Black Atlantic traffic, uh, Turner's The Slave Ship, had as, as a subtitle, uh, Typhoon Coming On. So typhoon is a word that comes from taifong, which, you know, so like it's a, you know, a word for big wind, and, but from Chinese. And so I got interested in like, well, how did that happen? How is it possible that this, this painting that seems so Western its orientation has a, a sort of a lexical marker of Chineseness contained in the title? So that became one way for me to start to think about like, okay, so what is the presence of, of Chineseness in the Atlantic that we're not necessarily seeing or that we haven't really acknowledged? Um, so that became a sort of the opening. And then... Again, to think through where I was in terms of institutional placement, because I think that's important when you think about how you how you perceive the globe, like where you are. I was thinking of not only the Black Atlantic, but also the Green Atlantic, which is, of course, the Irish. The Red Atlantic, which is a, a book that it talks about indigenous folks in the Atlantic. So I was interested in the kind of different hues of Atlantic of the Atlantic world, and I was less, I became less interested in like just kind of thinking about empirically who's crossing and what are they doing? And more about like, well, how do we know who's crossing? What kinds of things enable us to see? Or it facilitated us not seeing certain populations and certain kinds of cultural flows in that region. So that's where the Chinese Atlantic came in, because of course I knew historically there had been flows going through the region and also um, elsewhere. So that was, the, that was the start in terms of Black Atlantic kinds of not exactly a critique, but kind of a thinking through of what was missing from that kind of rubric. And that led me to think about other oceanic frames as I started to do research. And there there are many, of course. But I think one thing I realized quickly is, oh, so if we think of the Mediterranean, the Atlantic, the Indian Ocean, the Arctic, they all have certain kinds of temporalities associated with them in particular ways, or they become meaningful in scholarship in particular moments. So... As an example, Mediterranean. Often you get a lot of scholarship in antiquity about the Mediterranean and Mediterranean crossings, but also it's quite, it's quite relevant right now because of refugee populations. So I think it, you know it has a it has a moment in certain that resonates for particular historical epochs, I guess. So I was thinking through all these questions and then I started working at Duke on this race space place race space place collective with a Caribbeanist named Michaeline Critchlow. And she really helped me think through a lot of how racialization happens through place in ways I hadn't really thought through before. So that was very productive for me. And then we sort of teamed up and start and did a whole bunch of things together and um, so as we continue to work as a kind of collective we formed at duke and beyond we did something called islands images imaginaries that's a kind of conference and we'd invite guest speakers and that produced a journal issue in 2014 from third text and that journal issue, really look at like what happens when you look at the at insularity that is the condition of being islanded somewhere and is it possible that instead of just thinking about the archipelagic, which I think is also a big keyword in this oceanic discourse, archipelagic for me still fits within a rubric of area studies, if you will, generally, because they tend to be in specific places, obviously. So the idea of the insular was to think about, well, what, what might islands share across vast spaces? So it enables us to put in to relief, for example, the similarities in plantation cultures in the Pacific and plantation cultures in the Atlantic. So that became interesting or carceral regimes in that where sort of islands off the coast of South Africa that are used for prisons and those that are used for prisons uh, in off the coast of Asia or whatever. So those kinds of things became interesting to me. Um, and I couldn't do everything in the book, but I thought, OK, so what would be what could I develop more? And that became the ideas then start to gel around. Well, I keep looking at the sea, so seascape became the kind of focal point for what I was looking at because it really was how I was seeing. Like, I was looking at all these images of the ocean, and I, I was kind of thinking, well, what are those? And so I started to study, well, what is the seascape as an art genre? So it turns out that that is a Dutch colonial invention. So it happened to be fortuitous for me because it enabled me to track again kind of global traffic at the sort of at the moment when when transnational capitalism is starting to foment. So that was just a coincidence really, but it was very useful in terms of me thinking through how do we think about globalization through different kinds of sea traffic, and that's where I guess my I started thinking through. Um, oceanic paradigms in in much greater detail and my specific intervention was really to think about how skis seascapes function across different media and if we can analyze the sea what does it tell us from the way that we picture or imagine it that said there was a lot of in the in the books that I couldn't quite get to that I learned as I was reading. And so there's all these interesting things about, you know, creatures that live under the sea and how they perceive the world, which all of which I was fascinated by. And I hope some of my students pick up that work.
1: Uh, I hope they do, too, because I would look forward to reading it. Uh, So if seascape is is one of the main terms, um, the subtitle of your title, there's another one, right? In addition to these nautical theoretical terms, including, like we said, seascape, also this category called Tidalectics, which I think is fascinating, Um, Bruce Cummings, Pacific Rim Speak, your book is invested in the notion of theatricality. You take up and challenge that uh, notion as it is defined by perhaps its most famous theorist, Michael Fried, who's also writing about painting, actually. So there is a conversation that's happening here intermediately, which your book picks up on because you have, as you mentioned, a lot of different media projects that are coming together in this theatrical seascape how do you use theatricality and what is your intervention in this term?
0: Part of it, well, you know, my use of theatricality has to do part of, p- partly by, because of my placement in the discipline. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm working in the theater department, so I had to do something that that registered. <laughs> so that's partly why I thought I tried to think of like, well, how does theater and performance studies matter in this kind of kind of project? So theatricality for me then became a way of thinking about globalization first because I thought, well, okay, so one thing that globalization is, is a kind of substitution process where we use it to substitute for more complicated processes that we don't take the time to describe. So in my favorite example, we use the cloud to describe the undersea cables that connect us through the internet. So those kinds of moves I find are both substitutions, but they're also hyperbolic, right? So we imagine this gigantic cloud above us and those kinds of qualities I associate with theatricality. So then the question for me became, well, who talks about theatricality in relation to art history? And that brought me to Michael Fried, who, as you mentioned, is probably the art historian who's most picked up that term. Obviously there are theater folks who have done it quite a lot, but I think that I wanted someone who was working in art history because of the emphasis on seascapes in the book. So, theatricality then becomes a way for me to think about, kind of via Michael Fried uh, and his work, what is the relationship between an artwork and the beholder. So he talks about that a lot. And I'm often moving sort of an encounter current to his work because he tends to privilege artworks that don't address the beholder. And in so doing, he sort of gives you this whole vocabulary and way of talking about relationships between people and artworks. So I pick that element up and then I move it into various case studies that I track across the book. But for example, one of the paintings he looks at is Raft of the Medusa, which is Jericho's romantic seascape. It's probably the most famous seascape in the Western art tradition, and when he talks about the raft of the Medusa, he says that the artist theatricalizes the suffering of the folks on the raft because it was based on a historical event, a horrible uh, historical event where people were uh, cannibalizing one another and stuff who so were waiting for rescue. So for me, that painting is precisely theatrical because it's based on you know painstaking study of corpses, and then that are replicated for the painting. It also is staged on a raft. So the raft literally looks like a stage, and it requires a a beholder to move closer and farther away from the actual canvas, because it's so large that you can't take the whole thing if you're too close, but then you lose the details if you're not close enough. So it it demands that there's some sort of interaction on the part of the spectator. So for me, in that case, theatricality and pace or against read was quite useful as a term because it suggests something about how we engage the Atlantic world that's being depicted in Jericho's painting. And also it connotes affect, right? So we're supposed to feel something when we look at a painting like that, just as theatre is meant to make us feel something or have some sort of public emotional reaction, which I found uh, useful in terms of thinking about how different kinds of artworks produce meaning in the
1: world. I think you've whetted our appetites quite a bit with the wonderful examples you've used. And I want to point out for our listeners that um, part of the treat of reading this book is indeed not only the close readings, but also these historical and sometimes a micro genealogy, right, that appears throughout the chapters that helps us understand how mm, precisely what you said, these various words, terms, modes of imaging um, become relevant at certain moments. So uh, I it, it, your introduction does that wonderfully, and it, it, it continues throughout the rest of the book. But before we go to the rest of the book, I'm quite curious about the structure. Um, you've structured your book using some uh, watery gerunds, right? I-N-G words, processual uh, terms. How do they reflect the formal operations that you're deploying in your own writing? Um, not necessarily, you don't have to go into detail describing each one. We'll get to that. Um, but why this structure?
0: As a performance studies scholar, I'm interested in how text performs. And I try to replicate that in my own work. Often, not always, but often I'm interested, at least in my two monographs, I've been very interested in how the writing, what the writing does to the reader as a kind of performance experience. And I have been told I've been alternately successful and terrible at this. (laughs) But nevertheless, I keep trying because I think it's important to think through like the, how the object of study informs how we think about it and how we write about it. In this case, I wanted to think through an as you suggested, an aqueous vocabulary. So it's something that would that would connote the, the what I was trying to study. And in order to do that, I started to take a lot of boat trips to get a feel, literally a feel for what's it like to be on the ways, what kinds of vocabulary do sailors use when they're cruising around I went to a lot of maritime museums so to, to figure out like what other technologies that are inherent to seafaring and thus to seascapes so I tried to get to immerse myself in this kind of oceanic world so that I could try and and figure out what would be the appropriate language to use to describe the sensations that are produced when we're near or looking at the sea. So that was the goal. My editor, when she first read it, because it used to be like, uh, but the first iterations were really, really sort of as if you were, I wanted you to feel like you were immersed in the ocean with like, and you couldn't get a bearing anywhere. And so it was just like, there were no chapter headings or they just like a kind of like, put people awash at sea and she was like first of all the writing is cloying and second everyone's going to get lost if you don't help more with uh with the readerly process so we had a kind of exchange in terms of moving back and forth to make the prose more accessible which I appreciated you know I I like experiments in writing and uh that one I pushed too far
1: Well, you've certainly helped us get our bearing. I mean, the chapters do have their structure. Um, so let's, why don't we dive into that structure? The um, first chapter is dedicated to the genre of documentary. And you punnily deploy the term real, R-E-E-L, to describe how these two documentaries about the real world, R-E-A-L, address the aqueous histories of Chinese migration to the Caribbean, uh, specifically Jamaica. You write that these uh, nautical imaginaries and economies that we see here shape labor and the conditions of possibility for subject formation, which is what the documentaries explore, but you have two different categories of documentaries. So what does documentary do and how does it do it in this uh, argument?
0: Documentary for me sets up what we think we know, because it's ostensibly true when we look at these narratives. And I was interested in those kinds of claims and the kinds of evidence we use to support them. So in other words, what kind of material evidence is a filmmaker reeling together to create a claim about diasporic movement from China to the Caribbean? So I was interested, and it turns out, and when I looked at the twelve or thirteen documentaries that I analyzed, <laughs> uh, there's quite a few of them. But they they shared a lot of characteristics, and a lot of them had to do with uh, obviously talking head testimonials and things in in one set. So they were sort of ethnographic in their orientation that way. But another set of them were formally much more experimental, and they so the two documentary types sort of divided. And so I was interested in how each one worked and what kinds of assumptions were made through the form itself. I think a lot of social science literature on globalization ri- relies on empirical evidence. So the chapter really set out to both mark what we see as an empirical evidence, but also to destabilize those claims to some degree. And a lot of, a lot of the documentaries were about familial histories in particular. And I think... Often people naturalize that. I mean, diaspora is, after all, the spreading of seeds. So people think of like family lineage as the kind of um, chain back to a homeland. And I wanted to unsettle that, but also to market, because I think in some ways it was interesting how some folks were able to literally to sort of reinstall like a, a broken family line, like in the case of one particular documentary about Jamaican Chinese folks. And that was both an interesting move to me, but also it suggested something about how capitalism works. You know, what kinds of resources do you need to recover your ancestry in that kind of way? So all of those questions emerge in the documentary format for me. And then there's a couple other documentaries that appear later on in the book. But here, I really want to just start by saying, when we think about the Chinese Atlantic, what kinds of claims of of truth claims are we making from the get-go? What kind of assumptions are we making? And then how do we unthink those, if you will?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But you don't stick with just documentary film, you end up in your second chapter moving on to a different medium, which is the plastic arts, in particular, public arts. uh, And the locale also changes to Trinidad. So for readers, I'd like to note that we're really moving between various island spaces and kind of indexing how artistic practices are Addressing or how you're finding the Chinese Atlantic in these in these uh, artistic practices and how they resonate across these various places and various media. So in this chapter, you also introduce the figure of the coolie, um, of whom you've already spoken, um, but also the coolie as a a Chinese body that has been incorporated into other figures of finance particularly right in the sculptures that you write about here um, so how does how does that happen what does it mean for a Chinese body to be incorporated into other figures and what are these figures specifically in the work of Willie Chen as well as Christopher kosher um, Carlisle Chang uh, the tr- uh, Trinidadian artists that you write about here
0: you know I think about the cool I've thought about the coolie a lot and one of the things that that interested me in terms of Trinidad is that the imagination of chinese often was, was portrayed without any Chinese bodies appearing by the artists. So that sort of confused me, but also interested me. And that was different. I mean, I do talk about one, I think one Trinidadian documentary, or no, a couple of documentaries in the documentary chapter, but they're, they have a kind of different logic to them. The public art was interesting to me because it, it kind of evacuated the corporeal body from the frame and replaced it with what I call figures of finance or, you know, some sort of sign that stood in for Chinese coolies in different ways. So the opening image in the chapter is this piece by Nicole Ai Wei, who does this work that uses bitumen or petroleum as a kind of inspiration so she did she did a visit to pitch lake which is on the southern part of Trinidad and there's a, I think it's the largest deposit of asphalt in the in in the world maybe and she's incorporated that into the artwork so literally she does these kinds of freezes or um, sculptural kinds of freezes with the uh substance that looks like asphalt or bitumen literally protruding from from the frame and i was i was interested in that because a lot of the artworks i had been looking at up to that time were also incorporating some idea of chinese-ness into something else so for example willie chen had a bunch of public art installations around trinidad that he directed me to and one of them was in the bank trinidad is the banking center as well for the caribbean and the only sort of that he had a, a sculpture named Solar Marina Marina which Marina Rama is a seascape but it was above the it was on the wall sort of suspended and it's a, like a, a kind of interlocking pieces of a sculpture that end up c- um, constituting a dragon and so i was like oh this is interesting like we have a dragon kind of like a a chinese kind of figuration in the middle of this bank but isn't, where chineseness is not actually not mentioned it's just there's this dragon here but it's by a chinese artist so that kind of also me in like how do we think about the chinese presence being um subsumed into something else so all of the artworks i, I looked at whether they were by chinese trinidadians or afro chinese trinidadians or just trinidadians who had no chinese background they all did this in some way. They all kind of mapped Chinese coolies, but without actually showing any showing any people. And so the chapter became about how do we think about flows of Chineseness when we're not thinking about people. And I do discuss a, a little bit of like guest laborers coming over from China to build new performing arts centers in Trinidad. But I'm more interested in the chapter and how other kinds of, of movements like Chinese loans come into the islands? And what does that mean in terms of transforming them? Trinidad was a useful spot for thinking about this because Trinidad is also, it's got so many natural resources, particularly in terms of oil, that when you look at different maps, you get a real different sense of what the nation state might mean. So in Trinidad and Tobago, Tobago is usually the, the seen as the um, site for leisure, but um, Trinidad has all of these O- oil, um, what do you call them, you know, uh, oil refineries in the middle of the ocean just sitting there. I mean, they dot all of the seascapes around. And if you look at the maps, they suggest like different or contested um, sovereignty, because you're looking at different claims that people have made around the island to extract oil from the sea or, around Trinidad. So I was interested in that too, about how we think about notions of national sovereignty and also national belonging when so much of uh, when different maps provide you with very different senses of like who belongs and who owns different parts of this space
1: and to that point, the chapter is also called incorporating, right? Which is, it seems like a less transparently oceanic metaphor, but you have uh, in your in your answer here, we hear about different types of incorporations and corporealities, right? The next chapter, however, it's almost an overdetermined term, right? Flow, flowing, actually. Um, you specify this term, again, in corporeal and embodied terms with more rigor. In the previous chapter, we're talking about coolie bodies. Here, we have the arrival of merchants as well, and also a sort of orientalist practice of Tai Chi, right, on the island that you describe. um, You use the term oriental sensitivity, which you define as a corporeal manifestation of unease produced through an acknowledgement of cultural knowledge and the limits of that knowledge, specifically in the wake of Chinese cultural flows. And your locale is now Martinique. Um, So can you tell us about how you're making flow mean something very productive and very specific here.
0: Yeah, thanks. I think I wanted to move from a British colonial example to a French colonial example to think about how they eventuate into different kinds of migration patterns for Chinese folks. And in Martinique, I had thought I was going to use some of the same methodology. So I went to the library and looked for evidence of coolie traffic in Martinique, but I had trouble finding it. But I, what I saw instead was this Chinese, uh, this Tai Chi club with non-Chinese folks doing Tai Chi that met around the island. And so that became interesting to me. And I started thinking, well, what if we think about Tai Chi as a kind of corporeal flow or a, a flow of a certain kind of physical practice that people were associating with Chineseness, but by performers, if you will, who are not themselves Chinese. So I was interested in that disjuncture. And when I started thinking about Tai Chi as a framework for this particular chapter, I realized that most of my own knowledge about Tai Chi had come from... Orientalist kinds of writings, particularly in Barth and Kristeva, because of my own background in French literature and theory. And so I was like, "Oh, this is interesting," because I'm overreading whatever's happening based on what I had read before. So, and I thought, "Okay, so as a researcher, can we ever escape these kinds of formations?" And the other thing that happened was because the library ended up not being as useful as I thought it was going to be. I had to switch methodologies to really push on the ethnographic more, which is not my training, and. I didn't really know what I was doing, so I kind of worked it out as I went along. And I ended up interrupting Chinese shopkeepers in Fort de France because a lot of the joke is once someone, a Martinican, meaning non-Chinese person, closes shop on the island, a Chinese person opens it you know, reopens it under a different name. And so I I noticed that there are all of these kinds of bazaars and snacks or, or fast food places around Fort-de-France. So I thought, oh, I just come in and talk to folks, <laughs> They were like not happy to have me interrupt their work day to talk to someone they had no idea. And so in order to make conversation, I started to use my own family background to talk, to initiate conversation. Which for me was also a kind of self orientalizing move. So I was thinking, okay, so when we think about oriental sensitivity, I was trying to, you know, sensitize or set, become, create a relationship between me and my interview subjects um, quite manipulatively, really, because I wanted, you know, I wanted to learn things. And then as it turned out, and I got quite sick and so I had to go to the hospital, and it made me think of globalization a different way because the, because I needed to be hooked up to various medical machines and have an ultrasound and things. So then I started thinking about, oh, how does globalization work through medical technologies? And so that became another way of thinking about how these different flows were intersecting the island and when you become aware of certain flows and when you don't, right? So otherwise, unless I had gone to the hospital, I wouldn't really have thought about all the kinds of, of machines that are kind of moving all over the world that are pretty culturally unmarked, even if we, although if we trace them, you would find some sort of cultural history there. I think that's always interesting. So I tried to pick up that cultural history, for example, of the ultrasound machine in a later article I published in New Global Studies. But the chapter really was like a sort of a crisis point for me because I was trying to think of like, what am I doing? And what happens when I think about like my own biases, thinking through the objects of my analysis? So in that regard, it became... Uh, kind of a transition point for me to think more specifically about how the individual researcher registers or doesn't register in the research they port to objectively provide to an audience. So that's how that chapter got moving. And I've been interested in the notion of flow because I was working with a group from Indiana University and their press called Framing the Global, and it was mostly ethnographers. And so they really helped me think through like, how do we talk about knowledge through informants and for through people who are providing their own insights into the dynamics that are happening some, in a particular place. So that was useful because it wasn't just someone, an artist talking about something. I looked at a lot of different people in different walks of life or talked to a lot of different people who had thoughts on what it meant to be uh, Martinican and have Chinese flows coming through the island or Chinese people migrating to the island for labor.
1: Great. i um, very happy to, that you recovered and were here and <laughs> to write the book. Um, so for my next question, I would like to borrow one of your own to give the reader a sense of how you start your chapters and what sorts of questions you're interested in answering. We're moving away from the Caribbean to the coast of England. And the chapter is on ebbing and it becomes with a harrowing account of Chinese migrant deaths, right? That recalls in fact, some of these earlier paintings that you wrote about in your introduction. Um, in considering these very, the variously mediated coverage of this event, and you go on to talk about Nick Broomfield's films and Isaac Julian's installations that reference the, the tragedy, you ask, how do media forms shift the capacity to recollect the experience and very material mechanics of trafficking? What circuits of power and technologies of visibility enable us to see what are often invisible currents of both documented and undocumented human labor? What sorts of fantasy projection do the dissemination of media networks across the globe enable? What possibilities, not only for communication, but also for identification and production of agency and subjectivity, become available through such networks? So I apologize for the length of the questions to our listeners, but Sean, they're your own questions. I'm sure you're fully capable of answering such a long string of them.
0: (laughs) So we'll see. I think for me, I wanted to look at not just middle class folks or elites and i wanted to look at people who are in quite precarious positions because they also constitute the underside of globalization or when people celebrate globalization there's always the, the question of who has no agency or less agency in these kinds of movements and so human traffic victims seem like a, a good case study for this. And I was taken by the Morricom Bay drownings, partly because of the artistic representations of them all featured the sea in specific ways. So that was what primarily drew me to them. And the other thing that I would say about the motivation was, I. I started to become in this chapter interested in even more in what I call kind of partial personhood. So that's like, you know, the coolie and other kinds of categories of personhood where people are not really considered complete people. And it's interesting in human trafficking discourse, as I did my research, in order to register in the Palermo protocols, for example, you either have to be the exploiter or the trafficked. But there's no other investment in those documents in terms of the, the life of a person before they enter the trafficking circuit and the research in this area suggests that most many people at least if not most know that they're putting themselves at risk even if they're electing to migrate in a in without papers for various kind they're putting themselves in um, in various kinds of vulnerable positions and so i was interested in well what is what what do we learn if we look at trafficking and sort of expand the frame more? And I think the artworks do expand the frame to think through these people who really registered in death more than they did in life in the public imaginary because they, the the way they died was dramatic, theatrical, if you will, because the tide came around them at night and they didn't realize that so they all knew they were going to drown. But before they did, they placed cell phone calls to their families or loved ones. and those are the records we have of their lives and they were played back during the trials and things like that so i thought that was quite quite interesting and they're both of those kinds of 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 sort of afterlies are taken up in the two two artworks that i that i investigate in the chapter so for me it was to think through you know what does it mean how do how does chineseness register you know after life literally through these recorded messages and what does that mean about how we think about globalization and movement and labor, the kinds of labor that that enable or facilitate global flows? So that was the kind of overall kind of take. And then I was really taken by the fact that folks didn't have recognition. so after the after they died and the bodies were left on the shore where they were recovered neither government neither the english nor the chinese wanted to claim it because they didn't they didn't want to pay for the bodies to be shipped back so what was interesting to me is the art projects in different ways sort of raise awareness of this the film in particular asks its viewers to donate money for the families of the of the people who drowned both to pay back the loans they initially borrowed to start their migratory journey and also to pay for the shipping of bodies back in funeral services and things like that. So I was, I'm, I'm, I was curious about like, Oh, so here we have these films that are about like this kind of seedy underside of of global processes and then this appeal not to kind of large social structural change, but to individual philanthropy to kind of provide a solution, which also struck me as contradictory. So I was I I was quite taken by by all of these things that were emerging from this particular case. And it's made me actually interested in my next project, which I think we'll talk about later. But that's sort of what I'm doing in this chapter.
1: Yeah, we absolutely will talk about your next project. Uh, but before we do that, I don't I don't want to skip the end of the book, because once again, we're moving to a new locale, to a new continent, to South Africa, um, shifting ground or water, so to speak. Um, and so we see here we have a convergence of Pacific and Atlantic motions, right? The Dutch colonial project, as well as socialist internationalism, right? So we have a different version of China than we have seen uh, previously, and so far it is not the contemporary. China. And it is not, um, you know, late imperial China or even early 20th century China, but the mid-century. But of course, we also are dealing with China's contemporary presence uh, and the unease, right, um, of that presence in the South African imagination. Can you trace a little bit of these historical genealogies and how they come together in this last chapter, again, in the work of um, Isaac Julian, William Kentridge, as well as the other South African artists that you reference here for us?
0: Yeah, I think for I wanted, actually was doing some of the research and presenting it, and someone came up to a conference, at some at, up to me at a conference and said, oh, you really should think about South Africa, because it's quite interesting in terms of the work that you're doing, because the apartheid government did not have relationships with the PRC, they had relationships with Taiwan, because neither government was, that is, neither Taiwan nor South Africa during apartheid were recognized by the UN so they started established bilateral trade agreements during that time and so when we people talk about chinese in the 80s in south africa they really mean taiwan and so i was i and i this happens in the caribbean a bit but it didn't really happen in the sites that i was looking at in particular so i was curious if i could bring some of that nuance into the book and so the last chapter does try to do that a little bit and i think for me south africa was is is a pivot point between atlantic and and indian ocean discourse during the time i mean it took forever to write this thing so (laughs) during that time they started like a direct flight from joburg to beijing for example which suggests something about how they're rethinking relations across oceans so I was, and also because South Africa seems to be a gateway to the rest of the continent where there's now massive Chinese investment going all over Africa and for a while, and maybe still China was South Africa's largest trading partner. So I was interested in these kinds of new dynamics that were emerging and that, like all my sites, reactivated certain histories and and obscured others. So one of the things that happens there is obviously obviously, people like May Nye have written a lot about Chinese and the gold mines across um, in the late 19th century in particular and the early 20th century so they have a south africa had a historical wave of chinese migration like many of the places i study but then that had really shifted over time and the way that people thought about how what belonging meant in terms of race in south africa was, was very different from where other places i had looked because south africa's Um, government system really did divide people by racial categories especially during apartheid so that became a way of thinking through like well how does chineseness mean very particularly at different moments and in different places particularly in different places and the chinese were an interesting category in south africa because they got racialized in all kinds of ways some once as white but often as colored Um, and then after the apartheid government fell and a new government came into place to offer redress to populations that had been marginalized, particularly the Black population. Some Chinese folks in South Africa wanted to be reclassified as Black, so they too would benefit from the redress movement. So that was, I mean, that's very complicated, but I thought that that's really interesting in terms of how we think about how a term like Chinese-ness morphs. And the artworks I look at were also complicating how how we might think of chineseness and what it means so it starts to go into this chapter starts to enter into a non-human because a lot of the artworks started to think through uh, how the organic and mechanical are combined in different ways so i was taken for example by a street artist named dal east whose work was it's quite extraordinary. It's all over Cape Town, and I was interested. And they're all of these organic, mechanical kind of cyborg entities. And so this was one way I was thinking about globalization is in terms of how it produces new technologies that change the idea of what's human and what's not. And of course, that's a, also a question that we think of when we think about race, like what, who's human and who's not
1: absolutely and a, a treat for those of us who are interested also in the socialist aesthetic is that there is a, a reference to the red detachment of women um which i found quite fascinating that that is that's a little bit closer to my own work um but finally though when your book ends we're moving ground again um water <laughs> to a much more recognizably Chinese artist, right? Like one who is associated with a particular period in mainland Chinese art history, Tsai Um And he's a pyrotechnic artist, uh, as well as a petrochemical artist, we might say. Um, can you tell us why you chose to end there and how we can read Guo Guoqiang in a way that is different from the accepted kind of canonical reading of contemporary Chinese art when we view him through that journey through the Chinese Atlantic, right?
0: Yeah, thank you. I think Tsai, for me, initially started the book. And then just like my first book, the beginning became the end. <laughs> because I felt like Tsai opened up discourses that I didn't have time or really the expertise at the time to fully account for so a lot of the work I spend most of my time thinking about his work in Shanghai when I was living in Shanghai teaching and he did a lot of things that were about again human and non-human interactions or what happens when you know the the world is destroyed because of environmental devastation, what's left? And those questions ling- lingered with me partly because one index of globalization is, co- of course, global pollution. And China is often seen as the an origin, origin point for like vast clouds of tof- toxic smoke or whatever. And so I was interested in the way that Tsai portrayed that and what it might mean to think it, through different kinds of Objects or, like, for example, the atmosphere in terms of gases that flow across space and that are not localizable in any way, but are still often labeled even in the press as Chinese, right? So there's like a Chinese toxic cloud coming to get us, that kind of thing. And I, I was struck by that as a way of thinking through. Okay, there's other ways to think about globalization that don't really deal with people at all anymore. They're really just, you know, industrial products or. Something that happens to the environment that carries through the tile system or whatever or through the the through uh, through the airwaves. Um that kind of of different flow I think size very good at Literally performing, you know, so he's so because he's such a he's interested in pyrotechnics. I was sort of and he's been talked about by Hentai Yap, for example, as a kind of minor Chinese artist that is someone who sort of destabilizes the idea that Chinese art should only be evaluated in, in terms of like Chinese China as hegemonic power, or China as human rights abuser or whatever That size work may point to those things, but also indexes other stuff as well. And there's other ways to read it. So I, I was thinking in terms of East-West discourse, like how, how else does China register aside from its people, what other kinds of things manifest as Chinese in this, when we talk about globalization specifically. So Tsai became a way to think through that. And also to think about, you know, the stakes of a project on globalization that are really about the world or, you know, how we care for the world in this moment. So I wanted to, I decided ultimately that I would end with that kind of provocation because it felt like for me, it really drove home of why a study like this one might matter.
1: Yeah. Your comment reminds me of an interview that I um, co-hosted a few months ago with Jerry Z and his book, Incontinent and Dust, which also in fact combines the um, Pacific, American Pacific Rim with, with Chinese dust. Right. So uh, so this is uh, I'm sure there will be much more fruitful work that grows out of this. But speaking of work growing out of um, your completed project, can you tell us what your next project will be and how it maybe relates to this book or how it breaks new ground in different directions?
0: Yeah, I have two projects now, and one of them is kind of the third in what I have kind of perceived as a trilogy or conceived as a trilogy. It's called At First Glance, Queer Theory, Genre and Chinese American cinema. And that one sort of continues my emphasis across my first two books on Chineseness and the way it gets iterated in different ways through different media. This one looks at cinema particularly, which occurs a lot in... in different ways in my books so my you know i talk about the western and the musical quite a lot in my first book and this one i have documentary and this now i'm looking at popular genres particularly because they have really emerged with force in chinese american cultural production um, during COVID and around this current moment so i'm wondering partly how things like the romantic comedy science fiction the short how those things create meaning in our current moment and how they think through the connection between China and the U.S. in specific ways. So it, again, returns me to a Chinese-U.S. kind of movement. The other project is taking my work on Asian-American theater that I've done for most of my career, but thinking through questions that emerged both in my first book a little bit in terms of uh, East-West relations again, and also the second book in terms of Personhood and oceanic travel, and the book looks at refugees. So it's called Ambivalent States, at least it's called now Ambivalent States. We'll see staging refugees in Asian American critique, and that one looks at kind of refugee passage again as a type of partial personhood. And I think I'm, t- I'm supposed to take a law class next term to sort of on. Uh, on refugee law, but I think it's going to be structured around the ways that different refugee laws make legible or illegible certain kinds of persons in different moments and through different kinds of cultural collisions. So for the US, obviously 1980 Refugee Act is is very important, but I'm also looking at other kinds of refugees. So for example, the case that produces the criteria for claiming asylum based on oppression, based on sexuality. So I'm, I think it will be organized that way, but I've been looking at a lot of Chinese case studies, I think it's just because of who I am, and, and they include Ai Weiwei, obviously, and some other folks as well that will be, I think, recognizable to Asian studies audiences. And I hope that one continues the kind of emphasis that emerges in the Chinese Atlantic on the precarity of human populations and the kinds of consequences and vulnerabilities produced by global flows.
1: I'm look for, I'm looking forward to both of them and I wish you the best of luck in a law class, a bold undertaking. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and I encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of the book and learn more about the Chinese Atlantic.
0: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.